problems that you ought to be concerned with Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is my show, Bad With Money We're going to talk today about unions, and boy howdy, do I have something to say. If you're a Drag Race fan, cue the gif of Queen Jasmine Masters. All right. As some of you may recall, I used to work at BuzzFeed. I know. It's such a secret. I'm so sorry to surprise you. I left in 2015, so long before any of this was happening, but I kept up with the news when in 2019, BuzzFeed employees were fighting to and then able to unionize. This was after BuzzFeed unceremoniously laid off 15% of their workforce and then tried to weasel out of paying them for paid time off in their severance packages. A January 2019 Fast Company article called BuzzFeed's Layoffs and the False Promise of Unions Aren't For Us detailed the layoff of hundreds of employees, which then spurred 400 others to petition the company to include paid time off in the severance packages. Very reasonable. That is money these laid-off employees earned. By this point, the company already had a history of union busting. In 2015, at a closed company-wide staff meeting, CEO of BuzzFeed Jonah Peretti said though he likes unions personally, he didn't think they were right for BuzzFeed because managers are better able to advocate for employees than, say, a third party like a union would be. This was before BuzzFeed employees had even started talking about unionizing, so a shady preemptive strike. I don't have to tell you that this entire argument is garbage. You can and should always ask for more from your bosses. That relationship at its root is adversarial. Workers at BuzzFeed are writers and creators, which is not comparable to tech employees. And yes, everyone is considered replaceable at their place of work. Do not let that lie permeate. Look, I too was sold the lie that BuzzFeed was a liberal place to work, a family quote-unquote woke. It's dystopian for a CEO to preach union busting while trying to distract employees with trips to Disneyland. Trust that they're not replaceable? Trust who? I don't know you. In their own language? LOL OMG Raffle. This is classic stuff for digital media outlets trying to unionize, by the way. It has to get gritty before it gets fair. So the BuzzFeed employees walked out in June 2019. It took the company months after the workers voted to unionize and after that highly publicized walkout to officially acknowledge the union. By the way, those severance packages for the laid off employees that begat this mess? Following the initial public pressure, BuzzFeed did include PTO in the severance package, thus proving that collective bargaining works. Would you look at that? And an aside, if you work in digital news or media, you should be able to organize through the News Guild, so look into that for more information and help. Now, why is a union important? When the employees are powerless, it means everything. But when the union is used incorrectly in jobs where lines blur and money is pumped in for nefarious purposes, it twists the good a union can and should be doing. For the good, this week on the show, we're going to be talking to Wendy Liu, author of the book Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism which is part memoir, part manifesto about the tech industry, including much information about tech unions. 
Lou Speaks is a former Google intern who was enamored with the company, which had yet to unionize and later did, as she became disillusioned from the inside. She's then taken on Amazon, the gig economy, and the toxic systems behind other big tech companies. She's pro-union for good reason. We're going to talk about everything from the arbitrary colored badges keeping marginalized and local people from employment perks to why you're replaceable as one employee but not as a collective. Then we're going to shift gears and speak to my friend and superstar investigative journalist Cerise Castle about her reporting on police unions and their abuses of power, corruption, and conflicts of interest. But first, Wendy. Hi, my name is Wendy Liu. I am the author of the book Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism. And I, at the moment, I'm a software developer working uh, in San Francisco, but I'm also working on another book. And so I am trying to critique Silicon Valley in a way that is cognizant of the achievements that people associate with it. So I don't want to critique it in a way that feels like it's just about critiquing. I'm not saying everything about the industry, even the things you love are bad. I'm saying, what if we could develop technology in a way that does not enrich an absurdly small number of people and exploit everyone else in the process? So that that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Uh, I don't know if that counts as a, as a, what do I do? No, no, it does. I was gonna, my next question was gonna be, what is your book about? Yeah, so the book came out last year, last April, which was a great time to release a book because nothing else really happened. It was a very, you know, <laughs> It was like a very slow time of the year. The book is part memoir, part almost like political manifesto. I don't really know how to describe it. It's a bit of a a strange blend of genres, but it's the story of how I came to fall in love and then out of love with Silicon Valley as a concept. And for me, this was always a concept that I never really understood, but just felt drawn to when I was younger and learning how to program and spending a lot of time on the internet. I had this idea of Silicon Valley as this star in the distance that would be, for me, the key to a better life, you know, one where I could feel like I belonged, one where I could feel like I was working on something that mattered and also make make some money in the process, you know, let's be real. And I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know about the history of it. I did not know what sort of deals with the devil, let's say, you would have to make to get to these positions of power. And once I started to pay more attention to the critiques of the industry, and once I worked on a startup of my own, it became clear that this dream I'd had of the tech industry was not actually there in reality. There is something very, very different going on in practice. And I, once I realized that, it was kind of hard to go back to believing in the industry and worshiping you know, the tech founders and venture capitalists the way I used to. And so I wrote a book kind of about the process of that and also just to form a critique of the industry that is situated within within capitalism as a whole. And it's not just based on saying, oh, these people in tech, they're bad. Because that's not, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think some of them are maybe a little more evil than others. But at the same time, I think these are people who are in this larger system and they don't have that much control over what they can do within the system. What were the first sort of warning signs where you were like, oh, this might actually be a bit evil to workers? Yeah. So in 2013, I interned at Google as a software engineer. And I was, you know, over the moon about that. I was so excited. I had always wanted to live in San Francisco and I got to work out of the San Francisco office. And the first few things that made me realize that there was, there's something wrong. Not, I didn't exactly know that it might be evil to workers. I don't think I'd thought of, 
I don't think I really had the word worker in my vocabulary back then. It was more that it felt like something was wrong. And I noticed this when just walking through San Francisco, walking through Soma, which is basically where I was living at the time, and going to the Google office, and I would pass by a lot of homeless people. And there was something about the existence of so much suffering in Google's own backyard that made me think, well, this company is so wealthy. It seems weird to see such extreme wealth amid such extreme poverty. And also knowing that some of the early employees at Google had been made into multimillionaires, even billionaires. And just hearing about where they were spending their money, they were donating it to various philanthropic ventures that to me felt like they did not actually address what was important in the area where they lived. Uh, And at the same time, something that was happening at Google that I didn't really understand was the contractor system. And so at Google, there are people who are full-time employees who are, you know, often software engineers or managers or designers who have roles that are thought of as, uh, they're valued, they're thought of as prestigious. They're the roles where, you know, if someone says, oh, I'm working at Google, you think of that. Mm -hmm. Then you associate that with getting restricted stock units in the case of Google. You associate that with great benefits, with food and whatever the perks that Google. Parties, yeah. Yeah, that's a huge one. But then there are also all these other employees at Google who are working at Google every day and who are employed by Google, but maybe not directly Sometimes they're employed by this like outside vendor. Maybe they're employed by like multiple levels of outside vendors, but they have a different colored badge. And even when I was there in 2013, there were quite a few employees who had a different colored badge. And as an intern, I was basically in the same ranks as the full-time employees and that I could mm-hmm. go all the places they could go, even though I wasn't entitled to the exact same benefits because I was there for a short time. There are all these signs saying, you know, look at the color of someone's badge in case they go behind you and, you know, they're trying to tailgate you because there are some places where people with different colored badges couldn't go for security reasons, right? And there are other things that I didn't really understand at the time. For example, the contractors couldn't go to company parties and a lot of other company events are more like social events. And the way they kind of explained it was that, oh, if we let them do these things, the IRS will fine us <laughs> for classifying these people wrong. And I thought, okay, okay, I guess that makes sense. It kind of did make sense to me at the time. But at the same time, I mean, it was hard to deny the fact that most of the people who were clearly contractors or just did not have these great employment perks, a lot of them were Black, a lot of them were Latino, a lot of them were women. And of course, the full-time employees of Google, a lot of them are male and mm-hmm. have come from very different positions. And a lot of them have moved to the area, whereas the contractors are much more likely to be local. And so there are all these little things like that where it would just kind of plant a seed in my head and get me thinking, okay, sure, Google is maybe not to blame for this. It's not their fault that there is a history of racism in this country. But at the same time, they are profiting from it. They're taking advantage of it. And they're not doing much to make it better despite the fact that their mission is theoretically about making the world a better place like all of these companies were. And so, you know, even when I finished my internship, I didn't really have a way to understand it or to reconcile, on the one hand, the fact that I really liked being treated as a valued employee. I really liked how they treated me. But I also thought, well, these other people, they're not being treated very well. And I don't know what to do about it, but I don't feel good about it. Mm -hmm. And so I just had these kind of contradictory ideas in my head didn't really find a way to work that out until until much later. Let's get into that. There's the Google Union that starts, right? So walk me through how that started and what the ideas were there and then your involvement. 
Oh, so I wasn't involved in the Google Union. The Alphabet Workers Union started in the last few years. I forget when exactly. I believe they announced earlier this year. And I mean, that was just the result of organizing, result of workers talking to each other. It took a lot of hard work from a lot of people who really believed in the idea that Google could be better than what it is now and that the only way to make it better is to realize that the power of these companies lies in their workers. These people have leverage. These workers have leverage together, not as individuals, right? Because as an individual, there's only so much you can do. They right. can replace you. They can fire you. They can bribe you. But as a collective, if enough of these workers got together and built enough power, they could make a difference. And this is not a new thing. There's a very long history of labor organizing in America and in the world. How do we look to the history? How does that labor union history inform the current day? Yeah, I definitely think quite a few of the organizers at Alphabet Workers Union and and some of the other unions that have popped up in the tech industry in recent years, they are informed by history. It's clear in the kind of statements they give, the quotes they recite, and in the ways that they've acted. Because if you look at the history of labor organizing, I mean, okay, what do we associate with the tech industry today? We associate it with a place that's not for unions, right? All of these prominent tech people will say, oh, you know, unions are great, but they're not for us. Or they won't even pretend that they're great. They'll say, unions are terrible. Unions are holding back innovation. What? Explain to me why. <laughs> okay. So they have this idea of efficiency and innovation where wealth is being created by these genius hackers and workers in their mind are you know, holding them back by demanding better for themselves. So let's look at the case of Amazon, for example. Amazon does not want unions. Why? Because Amazon's entire business model is about extracting as much money from these workers and making them work as hard as possible. And you can't really do that if these workers are able to fight back by saying like, no, we want longer bathroom breaks. We want higher wages. We want better working conditions. We want to not break our backs every single day. For Amazon to be able to maintain its extremely high profit margins and the amount of control it has over labor, workers have to be as dispossessed and powerless as possible. And so the two don't match. You can't have both the union and this like really incredible degree of control and power that Amazon, the company, has over its workers. And I think that is quite indicative of how many parts of the tech industry work, not all of it. I think that is a really key example. And you can see a similar dynamic happening when it comes to, say, Uber or Postmates or Instacart or any of these other companies that rely on an army of unseen gig workers who are not treated as employees and are not not even legally given the right to organize, in many cases, into a union. So then going back to the fact that all these tech people just don't really like unions, I think many of us have this image of the tech workforce, especially in the higher echelons where you have the you know highly paid software engineers and people like that, we think of it as a place where it's like, oh, it's just not compatible with unions. They don't need unions, right? Why? I think that's because uh, people have this idea of unions as only being for coal miners. And there, you know, there's, workers. Yeah, yeah. And there's a strong history in this country. I mean, ever since Reagan broke the air traffic controller strike, this country has this association of unions as being either bad or gone. Or only for workers who are lazy or something. There's so much anti-union sentiment. And 
I think tech has been able to take advantage of that. And there are a lot of other Silicon Valley founders and leaders who were explicitly anti-union because they thought of unions, because they wanted to build something fast, they wanted to do something efficiently. But at the same time, I mean, they had this idea of unions as being slow and corrupt and a way to hold back progress. And, you know, that's not to say that there's nothing to the critiques of unions. There are a lot of valid critiques of established unions and how they have become corrupt when they're not democratic. At the same time, I mean, the labor union is one of the only tools available to a lot of people for improving their conditions. And so just saying all unions are bad, that doesn't actually recognize the reality of the conditions most people find themselves in, where it's like, well, if you don't have a union, what else do you have? Your landlord's explaining you, your boss is explaining you, you know, all these forces of society are arrayed against you. You need some way to build power with other people. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes a union in the form of a labor union or a tenants union or something else like that, that's all you really got. Mm -hmm. So going back to the question of, of tech unions, I think what's really interesting about the modern wave of tech worker organizing is that it's not just one thing, right? It's not just like one factor that's causing it to happen. There are all these different factors and we can break it down into, let's say like three sections. So there's there's one kind of force that's about improving the wages and conditions of workers, very bread and butter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, you can see this happening in Amazon warehouses. They want better wages. They want better conditions. You can see this happening for Uber, Postmates, Instacart, all these other companies. Um, but you also see something that's more about controlling the direction of the company. Oh. So, yeah. And this is something that is, it's, it's actually been quite prevalent in labor history in the past is just not something that is maybe thought about as much. But there is a long history of workers who thought like, well, we don't want our companies to be making weapons of mass destruction. Right. We don't want our labor totally. to be used to lock up immigrants. Yep. And I think this is, has been a big force in a lot of the work organizing lately. You can see that at Google where all these workers walked out and quit and just found other creative ways to stop Google taking a contract with the U.S. military. And you can Mm -hmm. see this happening a lot of other companies with law enforcement, especially last summer when you had the Black Lives Matter protests. And it was very clear that there is this whole, you know, military industrial complex and law enforcement was part of it that these tech companies were profiting from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while on the one hand, a tech company could say, oh, we believe Black Lives Matter. And on the other hand, they're selling tools to law enforcement to crack down on protesters. And so I think there's much more consciousness around these issues of what are the products that tech workers are building? Like, what are they being used for? And are they being used for purposes that the workers themselves would believe in and be proud of? And then the the kind of like last force that is pushing a lot of this organizing, I'd say it has more to do with with discrimination, with um, mm-hmm. the fact that women, minorities, you know, a lot of people who don't fit the molds of what a software engineer should be, for example, they're being treated differently and they're not being given the same kind of freedom and opportunities that their coworkers are. Like you said, they're put as independent contractors. Yeah, they're put as independent contractors, or even in a more insidious way, there are, rather than these structural barriers, rather than these obvious barriers, they're just being told in a more subtle way, like, oh, you're just not good enough. You need to spend less time like doing stuff that doesn't matter and more time being a rock star like John over there. Or, you know, their manager hits on them. And so this is something that is common in pretty much all industries. But I think the tech industry has it especially bad, partly because it's just so close to all this money. And when you're so close to money, right, it's like the disparities become way more magnified. You just see the disparity between the people who are valued by capital and those who are not increases a hundredfold. And at the same time, the culture of tech is one that 
talks a big game about meritocracy. There's this idea that yeah. all that matters is what you do and not who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're disabled, as long as you produce something that's valuable. But of course, I mean, the idea of what's valuable is extremely socially constructed mm-hmm. and that itself is going to be biased. But also at the same time, I mean, I don't trust that a single person in tech has the ability to actually evaluate anything in an unbiased lens. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone should. And so this idea of meritocracy, it's really just a way for people in power to congratulate themselves and tell themselves that they're, they're so good at seeing what's valuable. When I mean, they, they will even admit if you ask them, they'll admit that they have biases, that they'll, Mm -hmm. they'll see someone who looks like Mark Zuckerberg and they'll be like, oh, you know, give them all my money, <laughs> fooled again, right? And it's just what these, these people. Yeah, they just do pattern matching, and you have to, like, as a venture capitalist, as someone who's trying to hire people. I mean, it's pattern they have matching. To. That's interesting. I've never heard it put like that. It is the secret to VCs, right? I mean, that's that's how they do their jobs. If they're trying to invest in people, they have to do some degree of thinking. Well, like, I have no idea if this company is going to be successful, but this founder. Reminds me a lot of other founders. founders. Oh my God, that hurts my brain. (laughs) But it makes so much sense. I mean, you hear that in Hollywood too. Like I want to hire someone who reminds me of me. That's my mentee or whatever. And it's usually like white men raising up white men, white women raising up white women, et cetera. Totally. So if someone wanted to start a union, how would they go about doing that in their workplace without feeling scared? Like I used to work for BuzzFeed and there was so much anti-union rhetoric and so much like, no, we don't need that. We're a family. So like how would someone combat that to start one? Yeah, that's a great question. So first I would say- Your um, face when I said I worked at BuzzFeed. (laughs) Oh, I've heard a lot about BuzzFeed. So I sympathize. I'm sorry. Like we're both here Uh, like, hi, um, like we're here at like a a tech anonymous meeting. It's like, I was for Google. Uh, Here's my trauma. I was for BuzzFeed. Here's my trauma. Like- (laughs) <laughs> Honestly, that should be a thing. I think that would actually help a lot of people who have just these traumas that they feel like they can't talk about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So you're to your question. No, fantastic question. Okay. Two main things. One is know the history. Know the history of how people have approached this in the past. Because like, if you just read even like one book or watch one movie about labor history, you will see that you're not alone. That the problems that you have in your workplace are problems that people have had since time immemorial, since as long as there have been workplaces. And even before that, I'm sure like when serfs were organizing, they probably said similar things. And so I think it helps to feel connected to this history of people in positions like you who are just trying to carve out a little bit of space for themselves, make their lives a little bit better, make their coworkers a little bit happier and feel less insecure. So yeah, definitely like learn about the history. Another thing that's really important is to know what is the law in where you are, because there are a lot of legal protections for labor organizing that have been won through the hard work of people over, you know, hundreds of years. It's just nice to have, because then you can also, you know, if your company's retaliating, you can just tell them, well, like what I'm doing is legally protected. Corporations are really good at violating the law and getting away with it. Mm -hmm. So it's important to keep in mind that just because retaliation is illegal doesn't mean they won't do it. And so, you know, in the meantime, you just have to find a way to build power through associational means, through, you know, having solidarity with other workers and maybe not doing anything too flashy until you have the resources to actually fight back if something happens. And so, yeah, it's twofold. One, look at labor history, see what people have done. And two, know what 
what the landscape is now, understand what the laws are now, understand what kind of organizations you can look to and can rely on. And yeah, and I think there's just so much that anyone who's interested in organizing can find to inspire them. Where can people read your book and find out more about you? The book is... I don't know, maybe at your local library, hopefully. I'm a big fan of libraries. We promote the Libby app on here, which is my favorite app. Amazing. Yeah, you can probably find it like an independent bookstore near you. I try to tell people like, please don't use Amazon. if You can avoid it. It's not the end of the world if you do, but it's like there are local bookstores near you probably. And where can people follow you? Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dell System. It's a long story. Don't ask. Uh, The tweets are good, guys. The tweets are (laughs) spicy. The tweets are hot takes. So go check them out. And now we're going to talk to my friend and investigative journalist Cerise Castle. Not to brag, but Cerise's dog and my dog are best friends. But more than that, (laughs) Cerise is an incredible reporter who has most recently covered police brutality and sheriff's department gangs. You heard that right. Gangs in the sheriff's department. Google it. Cerise was also around for the radio station KCRW's Fight for Unionization, so she has experience in media labor rights too, which we also get into. Cerise rules. My name is Cerise Castle. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a reporter, and I cover mostly the Los Angeles area. So you cover the police, which is an understatement to say. So can we talk a bit about police unions and how they work? Yeah. So police unions are probably one of the most powerful types of unions that we have here in this country. And that's because they not only cover police, but a lot of times they also cover employees in district attorney's offices, which is kind of unusual, but that's the way it's set up. So for example, um, here in Los Angeles, that's something that is used quite often for the police department, as well as the sheriff's department, to sort of dictate interpretations of the laws as they see fit. And they'll sort of use their power to get decisions that they want to have them played out that way. There's probably a better way to say that, but I think you get the point. So for example, we just elected a progressive, quote unquote, district attorney. His name is George Gascon. And he introduced a bunch of policies that have really, really, really upset lots of people in the sheriff's department, as well as investigators in the district attorney's office that are covered by the same union. And it's led to a recall effort, along with a whole other slew of like nasty things on the internet. But the point that I'm trying to make is that Because of this disagreement, what the union will do is they'll sometimes give marching orders to their members and say, hey, we don't like the way this guy is doing stuff. So how about you don't show up to court to give testimony in that case? That's really important to him. And you won't go until he starts doing what we want to see done. Okay, so how does it work and why is it bizarre that the district attorney's offices are are part of it? Well, it's kind of bizarre because it's a conflict of interest, right? So the district attorney is responsible for investigating to an extent and prosecuting crimes in their respective counties. And the 
police department is responsible for, for the most part, what we call enforcing crime that doesn't really always shake out that way on the street, but that's what they're supposed to be there for, right? So, for example, a lot of times that it's a conflict of interest is like what happens when a police officer does a crime? A lot of times the same people that are supposed to be impartial investigators or prosecuting the crime, they have this prior relationship with the law enforcement officer. They're in the same union. They have camaraderie in a a large sense because of some of those things that I was talking about earlier. And it can lead to a lot of conflicts of interest. You know, a lot of times it's, it's this idea that, oh, this is good. We should unionize. And I think police unions are an example of when there's like too much power afforded. Why are they so powerful? Like it almost seems like lobbying. Oh, it is. I think it would be safe to say that it is lobbying to some extent. Why are they so powerful was your question? Yeah. It's because they have a lot of money. This is the United States of America. We're a capitalist society. I learned from one of my favorite history teachers in high school years ago, follow the money and you'll get your answer. So let's take a look at where the money is coming. How many how many cops are there just in the state of California? It's it's a lot, right? Let's Mm -hmm. think about all those individual unions. That's that's a lot of money. I know a lot about the sheriff's department, so I can speak pretty confidently about that. That's at least 10,000 employees and they pay a monthly dues. That's considerable. It fluctuates based on how much you make and your position in the department. So I can't really give you like an average, but I can tell you that the unions have millions of dollars in their coffers and that's used to donate to candidates that will push agendas that are in line with theirs. Candidates like district attorneys state legislators, city council members, judges. That's a big one, right? And through that, through having a bunch of money and being able to pay for mailers and calling people and events and all of that good stuff that comes along with the way we do politics in this country, they they can really have a lot of influence. Why is it a conflict for them to have a say in judges? Well, police are trained to find criminals. And in the course of that training, a lot of times, and I I say this because I've spoken with a lot of law enforcement officers, they take on this mentality that everyone is a criminal and they don't really see us as humans anymore. It's just sort of a state of mind that they get into for a lot of different reasons that we can probably talk about on another episode of this. (laughs) But the point that I'm trying to make is that when you see everybody like a criminal and you're a judge who is supposed to be blind and interpreting the law, you know, we have the the statue of the the law with the blindfold over her face and the scales justice. of justice. You're not supposed to be coming in with preconceived notions and biases. That can be an issue. Police money, basically. Yes. And they've got a lot of it. That's another thing. Bad with money. 
police are not bad with money. Police salaries here in California, they make a lot more than teachers. I'll tell you that. Teachers make under $60,000. Average police salary in this state is over $70,000. In the sheriff's department, most of them make $100,000. Wow. And, you know, they get overtime. They have a lot of money. And a lot of that money goes back into their union. And what kind of stuff does the union provide or or protect besides money? The union basically will take care of you throughout your law enforcement career. One thing I talk a lot about is the Peace Officers Bill of Rights, which is something that exists in most states in the United States. I believe Maryland just got rid of it, but I may be wrong. But it's most states that have it. Okay. The point that I want to make is that POBRA allows peace officers, when they commit a crime, they are allowed to, A, review all the evidence before they answer any questions with a union representative and a lawyer. Mm. And they also have to be questioned within working hours, their normal working hours. And if charges aren't filed within a year, they won't ever be filed. They cannot be filed. Wow. Why does that exist? Police unions. Yeah, that's not afforded to the average citizen, which is fascinating because then it's like an incentive to just do like, commit. I don't want to be like, it's an incentive to commit crimes. But like, if you're like, wow, I'd really love to commit crimes. I'll just become a police officer. Yeah. I mean, people can't see the look <laughs> I'm giving you right now, but. Yeah. I've been seeing, you know, a lot of stuff with you going out and obviously like organizing on the streets and stuff with your partner. I've seen a lot of intersections between like local organizers and then like anti-police brutality or like union organizers that are at the protest too, or you'll see local labor union 530 whatever is out with this anti-police or anti-sheriff's department protest. What's the intersection there that you've seen? So over the past two weekends that I've been out reporting, I've seen a couple of different unions out marching with the anti-police violence protesters. And those unions are the Roofers Union, the Waterproofers Union, and Unite Here Local 11. Unions have a very rich history of supporting working class people and working class rights. The labor rights movement is because of unions. So this is something that historically they've been involved in. And I think they've gotten reinvolved because their members are suffering, first and foremost. The parents of Andres Guardado, who was an 18-year-old working as a security guard in the Compton area of Los Angeles, he was killed by sheriff's deputies who were allegedly seeking membership in a deputy gang. His parents were members of a union, and the union has stood by them through the past year that they have been trying to navigate the legal system and in getting involved in that fight, other unions have gotten involved. And what I have seen from union leaders is saying that police unions really aren't unions at all because they 
do not fight for working class people in the same way that their unions do. They don't support policies that elevate the working class quality of life. And that's through candidates that they support, ballot measures that they support, so on and so forth. Yeah, that makes total sense. The history of unions are supposed to be protecting the quote unquote average person, although more working class people. And like, that's why I think like it's a misnomer or it's something where people have this impression that like all unions are good or that like the police union is going to be holding their feet to the fire. It's just it's just interesting to see the overarching idea of unions and then them being sort of like in opposition to each other. Do you see that reporters kind of take a general sense of unions when they report on them? Or is it more important to get into the specifics? Yes, I think reporters should do a better job of asking these questions of whose interests are these unions really putting front and center? What policies are they supporting? What what candidates are they doing? You know, every every election season, I I'm always disheartened at the lack of stories about who is behind, you know, these ads that we're seeing on TV, who's behind these flyers, booklets even that I'm getting in the mail. I got a thing in the mail in November of 2020 that was probably like a 10 page long book telling me which candidates to vote for with pictures. It was color on glossy, very expensive. And who paid for that? The police union. And that went out to every voter in my district. And I live in a very populous district of Los Angeles. And I think that went out over the city. So that's at Mm -hmm. least 3 million copies. That's not cheap. Yeah. I just was thinking back to what you said about follow the money, which is kind of, I mean, the whole thing. So on the flip side, you were very vocal in terms of the KCRW union, which is like a radio station that you were working for, that they were trying to stop you guys from unionizing. Is that what was happening? Like, what was the situation there? Oh, well, I came in probably towards the end of the fight for the unionization at KCRW. And it was a hard, it was a hard fight. They fought for over a year attempting to get unionized. And the reason that I went to KCRW in the first place is because the staff was unionizing and I wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted to work in a union shop because I was interested in protection of my fellow workers, regardless of race, gender presentation, sexual orientation, etc. Gosh, that was a grueling process. And I was only there for the end of it. The company held out on the inclusion of people that are very key to the production of a radio station, people like DJs. I don't know about you, but I think a DJ is pretty essential to a radio station. (laughs) (laughs) So they were trying to not include independent contractors or freelancers or what was – because you see this all the time. Like why would a media company not want to unionize? I mean I was at BuzzFeed during, you know, the whole time. Jonah Peretti was like, I don't think we need a union. We're a family, which like go F yourself. (laughs) Dangerous language. Work is never a family. Work is never (laughs) a family. Uh, And that if they're telling you that, they're they're trying to mollify you and trick you. So what is the problem with unionizing as a media company? 
The problem is that the the big boss doesn't want to pay. That's what happened at KCRW just a few days after we unionized. They sent out a company-wide letter saying that they were offering everybody that worked there a buyout. What is a buyout? That's when they say, we will give you X amount of dollars to pack up your bags and get the hell on out of here. And why did that happen? Because everyone's salaries jumped. They had to pay everyone a living wage. We had people there that were making $30,000 a year or less working full-time yeah. in Los Angeles. Not That's disgusting. Yeah. I feel like the reporting or the ability to react to this stuff has changed, right? When like Jonah Preddy was like, we're union busting at BuzzFeed. We don't want a union. People were able to get together and talk to each other, not just people at BuzzFeed, but like the internet was able to be like, this sucks, boo. Yeah. I think calling people out is the most effective way of getting things done. Ever since I started calling people out, man, my star has really gone up. Shoot. <laughs> Keep calling people out. Don't settle for mediocre. <laughs> I feel like there's now becoming like a stronger ability to be like aware of when people are union busting or when a place, a workplace doesn't have a union. Yeah, I'm hopeful that people are getting more aware of what exactly a union is supposed to be because they don't always function in a way that we want them to. Sometimes unions do fall short and they're not prioritizing the things that they should. But I think people learning and educating themselves more about unions, how they should function and how they should support workers, I think, yes, people are becoming more comfortable with advocating for themselves and just really getting in touch with their power. Ah, oh, okay. So first of all, you're maybe my smartest friend. Where <laughs> no, my girlfriend is your smartest friend. You know what? That's actually that's actually true. That's so true. Okay, so where can people find out more about you? Where can people find the amazing, unrelated, somewhat related LA Sheriff's Department gangs article that everyone should read? Everyone needs to Google LASD gangs and visit LASDgangs.com. You can learn a lot about deputy gangs, yes, gangs with a capital G in law enforcement. And they're all in a union too. So yes, it is connected. Woo! These are unionized gangs with a with a badge and a gun. Lord have mercy. LASDgangs.com. You can follow my work. I'm on Twitter at Cerise Castle, and you can find me on Instagram. Cerise Castle. And yeah, if you love my work, also feel free to shoot me a dollar on Patreon because I do all of this volunteering. I don't get paid for this. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> uh, yeah, please go. To I'm not Cerise's. in a union. Uh. <laughs> Look, nothing is unilaterally good or bad. It all takes context. I will fight forever on this show for the lost art of nuance. There's a huge difference between a walkout of underpaid digital media employees, some with no health care, or the demands of blue-collar laborers with no power, and cops refusing to show up in court to strong-arm investigators, judges, or prosecutors. Police departments and sheriff's departments work for the people. We pay taxes. Money should not be influencing them. 
Paying dues shouldn't exempt you from being prosecuted if you break the law or push agendas that inflict longer or harsher sentences on largely black and brown populations. We know this. If you're listening to this show, you know this. They're not working from a place of no power. Police and politicians and elected officials have the power. Unions are not operating here the way they were designed to. Cerise's reporting has been unbelievably brave and necessary. Her stance on following the money to where the power lies is a solid one. And as Wendy pointed out, the ones without the colorful badges at Google pre-union were POC and local hires. The bosses at Google or Amazon or BuzzFeed make millions more than the writers and software engineers and independent contractors and interns. The police make more as individuals than those they are the quote-unquote bosses of, the working-class person in the cities and towns they function within. Cerise and Wendy lay this disparity out perfectly because they are both infinitely better at expressing this than I am. So for me, basically, it all comes down to power. Who has it? And who is actually working together to organize collectively for better conditions? And who is just protecting their own asses at the expense of the rest of us? I hope this episode answers that question. Done. 